That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We're going to start out with Lamar Waldron, Lamar, my old writing partner and political commentator, JFK historian and author, talking about the, the Kennedy assassination and everything related to it. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. I got an email from Donald Trump. As you know, two years ago, I kicked five bucks into his campaign to get on his fundraising list and his email list. And I mean, this is like, this is incredible. He says, you know, dear Fred, Fred Flintstone, that's me. The Democrats are trying to overturn our Republican victories in Florida. First, they started coming up with ballots out of thin air. They fought to include votes from people who are not even United States citizens. Now, keep in mind, no Democrat ever did this. This is a blatant lie being told to us by the president of the United States. In an email, it's probably going to 10 or 20 million people. And then he goes on. This is actually from last week. And now that the recount is officially underway, an army of liberal lawyers is invading. You know, we need our own lawyers. Please contribute $250. Contribute $100. Contribute $50. You know, begging for money. It's signed Donald J. Trump, president of the United States lying about what's going on. The whole thing to me is just absolutely breathtaking. So anyhow, Lamar Waldron is with us. And uh, today marks the 55th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And Trump said that he was going to release all these assassination files. And yet he didn't. So uh, I wanted to bring us up to date on what's going on with the JFK assassination. Starting 30 years ago this month, Lamar and I began a collaboration that turned out two huge books, the vast majority of the work being done by Lamar. Ultimate Sacrifice is the first, Legacy of Secrecy the second, and then Lamar went on and wrote a third book, his most recent, which is in print right now, easily found, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Lamar, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you again, Tom. It's, it's hard to believe it's been 30 years, hasn't it? Yeah, it really is. And we had a couple of informants putting this thing together. I remember rather vividly all the effort we went through to track down Harry and Ricky Ruiz Williams, who really cracked open the whole secret plot, you know, with Castro and all this stuff that led to not just the assassination, but the successful cover-up of it. But we also had a guy who was uh, very, very close to Bobby Kennedy. 
And today we're going to talk about who he was for the very first time. We haven't named him in any of the books and what we learned from him. Also, Gary Hart, Brett Kavanaugh and Mitch McConnell have a role to play here. So but first, Lamar, what did Trump do about the JFK assassination files? Okay, so you and a lot of your listeners might remember that last year at this time, actually a few weeks before the anniversary last year, a year ago, all the JFK files were supposed to be released. Congress had passed the law back in the early 90s, unanimously passed it. You know, we can't imagine that today, right? And this was in the wake of the Oliver Stone JFK film, and it was to release all of the JFK assassination files. Because people thought, well, there could be thousands or hundreds of files left, right? Mm -hmm. And so, basically, Congress passed that law, and there was a commission appointed, of distinguished historians and a judge, everybody who was supposed to like look at the files. And Well, they released four and a half million files. But a lot of the agencies, the CIA and the FBI, held back their files. So that commission was basically set to go out of business and dump them at the last minute. So NBC News said when that commission ended around 1997, 1998, a million CIA files alone remain to be released. So there were a lot of files left to be released. The ultimate deadline Congress had set was last October of 2017. So only the president, he would have the final judgment if a few documents had to be kept secret for personal reasons or national security or something, you know, after all those years, the president could do that. Well, so worldwide attention was focused on this. I was sent to Washington by Japanese television to film a document, you know, to be there when all these files were finally released. And I kept telling them, yeah, you're going to be disappointed because they're not going to all get released. A lot of files will be released, you know, but the main files, a lot of those millions say, yeah, they're not going to be released because they're not even on the list to be released. So sure enough, Trump's appointees waited until like the last day, I mean, the last day, it went to him and said, look, we can't release all of our files. That's what the FBI told him, CIA, other agencies. So he said, okay, look, we're going to give it till April. Okay. And then, then the files are all going to get released. So most people think all the files got released. They didn't. Last April, a bunch of files got released. Some we already had parts of. Some were released with almost completely blacked out pages. But they were hundreds of files that weren't released that were on the official list. But as you and I have talked about it, and your listeners who've heard me speak before know, all the most official files about the attempts to kill JFK in Tampa four days before Dallas, the government's plans for what to do if JFK was assassination, that Robert Kennedy spearheaded making those plans starting two months before that, all those, no, those aren't even on the list to get released. And so what Trump did was kick it down the road another three and a half years and said, well, you know, in October of 2021, uh, the files that haven't been released yet, uh, we'll look at them again and maybe they'll be released. You know, Trump, with a lot of luck, won't even be president in October of 2021. So the bottom line is the archives admits 520 documents remain withheld completely in full. But, you know, all of the most secret files, including operations that we're going to talk about today that are our own deep throat of, you know, what the, I think he's, there are only two more confidential sources left after we identified this gentleman today for the very first time. You know, they told us about these. We found bits and pieces of the documents. So we know they exist. We know thousands of other documents exist, but they aren't even on the list. They aren't even on that 520 item list. So that's where things stand, which is not a great situation if you and I ever want to see those plots. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And Brett Kavanaugh involved in all this stuff. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to our informant, our deep throat, and a whole bunch of other stuff having to do with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the 55th anniversary of the assassination of President John Kennedy, and we're talking with Lamar Waldron about this. Tell me about Brett Kavanaugh. Well, it was so ironic. The very day that Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, he was part of a ruling. And you probably know a little bit more about D.C. courts than I do, but he was on this appeals court. Yeah, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Exactly. And they had been dealing with a particular case for several years. And on the very day that Trump nominated him, his final ruling in that case was released. And it's the most ridiculous case you've ever heard of. And it's going to take a little explanation, but if you bear with me, I promise you and your listeners it's all worth it. So basically, back in the late 70s, Congress was doing another investigation of JFK's murder. And this was a big investigation, the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And uh, the CIA was supposed to help them out, right? This is under Jimmy Carter in Stansfield Turner, CIA director. And so they, they didn't have anything to hide. So they're like, yeah, CIA, cooperate. So the House Select Committee said, look, we need to know which CIA agent was running a group of Cubans that Oswald had well-documented contact with a few months before the assassination in New Orleans. Can you give us a CIA agent to help us find that CIA supervisor? Okay. And so the CIA said, sure, we'll send a guy to help you find this guy that you desperately need to talk to. Well, they never found the FBI supervisor because the agent, the CIA sent them to help them find the FBI supervisor was the agent that had run that operation. And, and we need to give credit to a guy named Jefferson Morley, who in the, in the 90s was a reporter for the Washington Post. He, he tracked that down. He said, my God, you know, the CIA basically just deceived Congress. So this is uh, Fox meet Henhouse. Is that the routine here? Exactly. Exactly. So, so Jefferson Morley uh, did a lot of work exposing this, filed lawsuits, everything like that. He's not with the Post anymore. And, and basically, this Freedom of Information lawsuit went to that circuit where Kavanaugh was. Okay. Mm-hmm. So first, and they, he was able to, Morley was able to get some of the files out of them. But they just withheld lots more. And the whole question of obstruction of justice was just ignored by Kavanaugh uh, hmm. on the Supreme. I mean, it's just like, oh, okay, they obstruct your justice? No, that's fine. We won't even worry about that. So then, whenever a private citizen like you or I or Morley goes after files and you get anything, you get some of them, the government's supposed to pay your expenses and the expenses of your freedom of information attorney. So that was the most recent part. The CIA said, sure, we were hiding some files. We're, we're keeping, of course, most of them. But, yeah, we shouldn't have to pay a dime even though you caught us cheating, and we have committed obstruction of justice, which they didn't admit. And so that was the ruling that Kavanaugh put down the day he was nominated to the Supreme Court was that, yeah, they say, yes, so what if they committed obstruction of justice? So what if they hid and are still hiding files from Congress and the American public? It doesn't matter. Morley does not get his expenses paid. I, I, I don't know if Morley is appealing that decision. If he can appeal, I sure hope so. But, wow. I mean, I, I mean that, that tells you a lot about Brett Kavanaugh, that, that obstruction of justice to him wasn't even a factor. 
That's, that's amazing. Lamar Waldron is with us. His most recent book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Uh, he also wrote Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy with a little help from me. The website. What's your website? No. Uh, Lamar. The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination.com. Thank you. We'll be right back. Lamar Waldron is with us, uh, the author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, as well as the author of Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy, two books that I played a role in. My name is on the cover. And Lamar, we were just talking about how Brett Kavanaugh's last ruling when he was on the D.C. Circuit, the day that Trump nominated him for the U.S. Supreme Court, that his last ruling was to say to a lawyer who had filed a FOIA a reporter who had filed a FOIA claim, a Freedom of Information Act claim, with the CIA asking for Kennedy records, and the CIA lied to him and to Congress and hid things and obstructed justice, and Brett Kavanaugh basically said, eh, that's okay with me. Do I have that right? Not only that's okay with me, but, yeah, the CIA, like the law says, unlike the law says, doesn't even have to pay your expenses. Yeah. So, so Kavanaugh's now on the Supreme Court, if a JFK case winds up in front of them, do you expect him to recuse himself? I mean, you know... Of course not. Of course not. He would probably tell the others, oh, I, I know all about this. He would probably take the lead on it because he has experience with years of this. You know, one quick... You mean thing. covering up CIA files about the Kennedy assassination? <laughs> right, you know. Seriously, so, on the D.C. Circuit, he's been. He, this is not the only time he's done that? There have been a lot of rulings on this particular case, at least two major ones, including that one that came out that he was nominated. Yeah, he has experience there. It's just one more reason Kavanaugh needs to be forced to resign. Mm. You know, we know Mitch McConnell's never going to let him be impeached the way that Anthony Scalia should have been impeached. And sometime, we don't really have time today, I hope progressives out there will look at the same techniques that were used to force the resignation of Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas. Right because they can be applied to get Kavanaugh to resign. But let's get back to Mitch McConnell. Well, it could also be applied theoretically to get Thomas to resign. But anyway, that's Oh, yeah, that's I another, mean, he's probably even closer. Yeah. Great point. That's another so, fantasy. Uh, so because the bottom line is, even with the Democrats in control of the House, even when the Democrats hold high-profile hearings about the still-withheld JFK files, I mean, what a great thing. I mean, who is against releasing those files. Not many people. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh, but, you know, and Mitch McConnell. But they're never going to be able to pass a law to do anything because Mitch McConnell, people don't realize, he started his career working for the Warren Commission. <laughs> he was the Wait a minute. The Warren Commission that was designed to functionally cover up who killed Kennedy, because at the time LBJ was worried that it was Fidel Castro, and if that came out, it would cause World War III if he had to react to that. And that's why you see Warren walking out of that meeting with Lyndon Johnson, where he was told you're going to cover this thing up with tears streaming down his face. Right, Do I have that right? Thought it was, you know, tens of millions of people could die if it came out that Castro had any role in it. He didn't. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, and, and even Bobby Kennedy's people, they pushed for the Warren Commission because they, they didn't want Hoover being the only person. So, yeah, so the, you know, the Warren Commission, garbage in, garbage out, the least informed of five official government committees to investigate the assassination. And Mitch McConnell was the intern for one of the Warren commissioners, Sherman Cooper. So he cut his teeth on that. He obviously wow. you know, has a vested interest. So last year, when Senator Chuck Grassley, whom we know from the recent Kavanaugh hearings, 
and who on occasion has been semi-reasonable, certainly not about Kavanaugh, but Grassley was like, yeah, we need all the JFK files released. Let's do something. But his efforts in the Senate went nowhere because Mitch McConnell has no interest in doing anything that's going to tarnish the reputation of the Warren Commission. He was an intern for right. one of the Warren Commissioners right. from Kentucky. Right. So, you know, nothing's going to happen in the Senate. Anything that's going to happen to get these files has to happen in the House, and it's happened before. Hmm. So, real quickly, what should the House be doing? They need to hold high-profile hearings to say, look, you know, all the most important assassination files are not even on the list that might be released in 2021. Why is that? Get the directors of the FBI, CIA, Secret Service, Naval Intelligence, they're all the main people, to come up and testify under oath. The people running those agencies, they don't know anything, but there are enough tenured professors who know this stuff, who could advise that committee, we'd certainly be happy to. And again, what are the Republicans in the House going to do? Are they going to say, no, we shouldn't release all... I mean, it's one of those things that actually should have bipartisan support, but that's only going to happen if they do those hearings. And I know they've got a lot on their plate, you know, so I'm not saying this should be the first thing on their plate, but they need to do that because the House Select Committee in the late 70s, they actually, you know, the one that the CIA you know, did the bait and switch on with that CIA operative, the supervisor, you know, they actually uncovered a lot of stuff. They actually concluded JFK was killed by a conspiracy. They identified these two mobsters, Carlos Marcello of Louisiana and Texas, Seno Traficanti of Tampa, as having the motive, means, and opportunity. And they weren't even the first congressional investigation. The first congressional investigation was before that, and you may have heard of the Senate Church Committee. Right. Gary Hart was part of that. He was a big part of that, not just on the main church committee to look into CIA abuses and assassination plots, but he and I believe his name was uh, Schweiker, they had a JFK assassination subcommittee, so they specifically looked into the JFK assassination. Gary Hart himself, on the record source for us, by the way, actually went to Europe trying to meet a particular CIA assassin recruiter with the codename of, of QJ Wynn. And so, you know, Hart was really digging into this, and he'd really stumbled on something, because if people look in any of our books, but especially Ultimate Sacrifice, the first one, there were, I think, two dozen parallels between the guy Hart was looking for and someone who was definitely in Dallas involved with JFK's assassination. Remarkable. Remarkable. Uh, Lamar and I are going to really do a deep dive here into the JFK assassination, what happened 55 years ago in Dallas, and reveal our very own deep throat, one of our, one of our most confidential sources who is very, very close to Bobby Kennedy and gave us a lot of inside information. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. We're doing a deep dive into the JFK assassination. Stick around. It's going to get fascinating. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine 
I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511 Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. Tom Harmon here with you. Lamar Waldron on the line with us. And we've been talking about the Kennedy assassination, Lamar's most recent book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. He and I wrote two other books on the subject, Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy. And you can find all of those, you know, at your normal place. Lamar, Gary Hart, we started talking about this. You know, you were talking about QJ Wynn, and, you know, I went to Paris trying to track down Michael Victor Mertz. Exactly right. And people should know that what Hart was onto was a guy by the name of Michael Victor Mertz, who was an assassin, a very famous assassin. I know, I felt totally spooked trying to track this guy around Paris, <laughs> as you <laughs> well as remember. I've told you. I, 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 I was scared to death. And I hate to say this, Tom, because I probably didn't emphasize that enough back then, but, but yeah, you should have been, because he helped to invent what we know today as the French Connection that Santo Traficanti and others used to get all that heroin. In fact, the technique in the French Connection movie, great movie, hiding the heroin in a car, smoking a rubber that was what Mertz did. But Mertz was also, he was high in the French mafia, deep connections with the American mafia, and he worked for French intelligence. He had been a Nazi sympathizer. When it looked like France was going to lose the war, he picked up a machine gun and, and machine gun a bistro full of Nazis. So he wound up you know, being decorated in World War II. But by the early 60s, he had helped prevent one of the many assassination attempts against Charles de Gaulle. So he had ties with French intelligence. Anything he wanted, you know, in terms of the French mafia or the American mafia, he could get. And get this, we actually have the document that says Michael Victor Mertz was deported from Dallas, right. you know, within 24 hours of JFK's murder. You know, right. So he was there. He was part of it. So do you think he was the shooter from the window? Well, let's put it this way. Actually, there is a guy described in the window as wearing sportswear that fits Mertz's description very well. Mertz was more of a supervisor who could have certainly have fired the shot in a heartbeat if he had had to. Mm. But when you need someone on the ground, he could speak perfectly unaccented English. 
And when his story was later told by Newsday in a Pulitzer Prize-winning expose of the heroin trade called The Heroin Trail in the early 70s, I talked to that Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter years later and said, you know, nobody's got a good picture of Merck. Do you have one? He says, oh, yeah, we've got one. We got one after the article's ran. I'll go get it out of my file. It's in the special file, you know, the one that we keep sensitive stuff in. He came back on the line, you know, about an hour later and said, I, it's gone. Somebody got yeah. it out of heart. And yeah. so, so bottom line is, Hart was going where the CIA didn't want him to go. Under the church committee, not at the start, but by the end, the CIA director was George Bush. And so they were constant battles. Bush withheld a lot of information from the church committee. And Hart was so... Wait a minute, George Bush was running the CIA at the time that JFK was assassinated? No, no. Uh, it, this was the after the fact. Okay, the, yeah, that's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, during, during the last half of the church committee, while Hart was trying to get files out of the CIA, he was constantly battling with George Bush's CIA, who just wouldn't give up the files. Right. Like they're keeping them today. And so, flash ahead to the mid-'80s, Hart is looking at running for you know, Bush's vice president then, and, and Hart even writes a novel that includes thinly veiled portraits of a CIA director like Bush and Q.J. Wynn, and basically, you know, says, yeah, JFK was killed by a conspiracy, but the CIA is hiding a lot of stuff, as they were. And so when Hart, you know, ran for president, he was cocky, and I don't want to in any way downplay Hart's, you know, moral failings, because, you know, he shouldn't have been doing what he was doing, right? Well, it turns out he might not have been doing any of that. I mean, uh, there's now a report came out, I don't know if you saw it, it was a couple of weeks ago, that the entire thing was a setup. Oh, I totally I mean, dug into that. It's totally true. Lee Atwater. The yeah, Lee Atwater trade, put it together, yeah. Yeah, on behalf of George Bush, right. because Bush did not want to run against Hart. The same reasons we're talking about. You know, what is, is if Hart's going to be running against, you know, release the, the JFK files, reopen the investigation, what's Bush going to do? Say, yeah, this, this is the same way that Nixon took down Ed Muskie, I mean, because he didn't want to run against Muskie. Let's move along to John Nolan, this RFK aide who gave us so much information, A, you know, who is he, what did we learn from him, and B, why can we identify him now and we didn't before? And it's interesting, you know, hearing you say that name in public, you know, after all these, since the early 90s, when we, that was just a name, we would talk around this person. I, That's I right. think I called him in the book a close Kennedy aide or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so who was John Nolan? John Nolan was Robert Kennedy's top aide in 1963. John Nolan saw every single classified file that Robert Kennedy wrote or that Robert Kennedy saw. You know, when it came to the classified stuff, John Edward Nolan was the gatekeeper. He was a rising young attorney. He had helped deal with some Americans that were still in Castro's prison. Right, and at this point in time, uh, just for context, Robert Kennedy was not just John Kennedy's brother. He was the Attorney General of the United States. He was the Chief Law Enforcement Officer for the country. And going after the Mafia, he and John, like no one had ever done Which before. is why the Mafia killed him. It's Which is exactly why the Mafia right. killed Jack, anyway. And, and it looks like probably played a role in killing Bobby. Exactly. And, and so this guy, John Edward Nolan, I mean, he was so close to Bobby. When plans were made, you know, for what to do with JFK's body, Nolan knew and told me, confirmed, and we've got files that prove it, you found one of them, that Robert Kennedy, for two months before the assassination, had been making plans for what to do if Castro found out 
about Robert Kennedy's plans to bring democracy to Cuba and somehow retaliated by assassinating an American official. That's why JFK's autopsy was not held in Texas. And that body was pretty much forcibly removed by the Secret Service, brought back Bethesda Naval Hospital. Robert Kennedy was... Hang on just a second here. You just slid past something really fast, and a lot of people might not have caught it. They were concerned that... And who was the guy who said, I'm in charge now? Al Haig. Al Haig. I remember, I believe, I spent a lot of time in the JFK library, and I believe that I remember finding that document. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. And bringing and it like, back. What, what does Al Haig have to do? Right. And bringing it back to you. And then we were like, holy crap, what's going on here? So what had happened was that the Kennedy administration, in anticipation, because they were preparing to invade Cuba, concerned that if Castro discovered that there was actually going to be a serious, or not invade Cuba, rather, right? this was an well, assassination. They were going to stage a coup using the number three man in Cuba, the head of the Cuban army, and the founder of the Cuban army. Correct. The guy that we only identified after he died. Right. And this was the first week of December. It was going to happen two weeks after Kennedy was killed. Ten, ten days after Dallas. Is yeah. So what they were afraid of was if Castro finds out about this, he might, like, you know, send a hitman to kill the U.S. ambassador to El Salvador or the U.S. ambassador to Mexico or something like that. Right. And if he successfully does that, once again, then the American people found out about it. Once again, the American people would demand that we take out Castro. And if we did that overtly, and this was a covert operation, if we did that overtly, that would bring in the Soviet Union and that would lead to World War III and hundreds of millions of people would die all around the world. So what they put together, what Al Haig put together, signed off on, was this special thing that said, basically, if we believe that any of our American senior officials have been assassinated by a, you know, a foreign by, by power. Castro, basically. Yeah, by Castro, basically. Yeah, it was a foreign power. Hey, hey, then we will, we will basically mutilate the body, seize, well, well, control, well, well, or control, seize control of the body. Well, let's be careful. So there are a lot of things. And again, we have a handful of pages of these, and 20 copies were made of each. You know, the CIA worked on this, Robert Kennedy's people, the Secretary of the Army's people. That's how Al Haig comes into it. All these people were working on it. You know, and we have a handful of pages. We should have hundreds, because they were meeting sometimes several times a week from September 63 until after JFK died. And so they, they were making these plans. So Nolan was the guy. Nolan saw every plan. He helped Robert write every memo about it. And he's the one who helped explain to me why this was being done and, and what was supposed to happen. Because as he said, let's say the U.S. ambassador to Panama looked like he had been assassinated. And, and a Cuban may have been involved. Well, you know, we're going to have to invade Cuba, World War III, year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is not good. So the plans were designed to buy time so that you could make a reasoned thing. You know, what if the ambassador was just killed by a jealous lover, you know, you just, or, or just a random street robbery? You wouldn't want to have caused World War III because of that. So the whole thing, they're called the Cuba contingency plans, were to buy time and also so that you would federalize, because you wouldn't want a Panamanian hospital doing that autopsy that could trigger World War III. Or in and this you case, you wouldn't want a military. Texas hospital doing the autopsy. I'm sorry, what? And in the case of John Kennedy, you wouldn't want a Texas hospital doing the right. autopsy if you yeah. suspected that Kennedy had been assassinated by an agent of Castro. Right, because Robert Kennedy was running this entire operation to basically have the number three man in Cuba eliminate, it was their word, Fidel and his brother Raul. Yeah, this is Juan Almeida. Exactly, Juan Almeida, the founder of Almeida. the Cuban army. And then he would invite 
in the, the assassinations of Castro and Raul, may as well call them what they would be, even though they call them eliminations, would be blamed on a Russian or a Russian sympathizer. Right. Who would be the patsy, just like Oswald. Yeah. And that would neutralize the 11,000 Russians still in Cuba. And then Almeida, Commander Almeida, would invite U.S. forces in to prevent a Soviet takeover. And Robert Kennedy had overseen the training. We still have one confidential source left there we won't talk about. But So the first U.S. troops into Cuba would not be a bunch of white crew-cut U.S. Marines. It would be a racially mixed group of Cuban army veterans, basically. And there would be a coalition government, and never, not the next year, not 10 years later, not 20 years later, no one would ever know that this was all basically a setup. This was all planned from the start. Unfortunately, the mob godfathers, Traficanti and Marcello, Bobby was prosecuting and persecuting so heavily, deservedly so, you know, they infiltrated this operation from which the mafia had been banned. The mafia was going to be banned from reopening their casinos if the coup succeeded. So they had nothing to gain by letting it go forward, but they knew how secret it was because uh, several of their people were actually working on it. And so Collaboratively with the CIA. Right. Well, with several lower-level CIA people, like Bernard Barker was one. So bottom line is JFK is killed, and the mob uses, because they've infiltrated this super top-secret plan that the public in America didn't know about until we wrote about it in our books, you know. And we had to keep all this stuff secret. for. Oh, I was threatened by a one-star general in Washington, D.C., Harry's best friend. You know, he threatened me with being put before a firing squad if I named Juan Almeida because at the time he was still alive and he was still the number three guy in Cuba and he was still a U.S. asset. And that's why we couldn't bring all this stuff out in the early 90s when we were getting it from Harry Williams and John Nolan and all these people. Because, right. yeah, he, so, he you know, we, in our first book, we couldn't name, as I recall, we didn't name Harry. Well, the, actually, we did name Harry. He was dead. Didn't name Almeida. It was only in the, literally the day the hardback came out, completely separate from it. Right. The National Archives wrote and then told me by phone they were declassifying information, identifying Juan Almeida's role. So then I took the next, after taking an extra two years to write Ultimate Sacrifice so that no one would ever be able to figure out his identity. Right, then you redid that. So we're talking now about John Nolan because John Nolan has passed away, right? Right. He died last year. And having lost my father back in March, you know, I didn't want to rush any of this. So it's Mm. been a year. And so Nolan, Nolan knew Harry Williams. Nolan's knew Haynes Johnson, the noted journalist at the time. Nolan, obviously close to Robert Kennedy, remained close to Robert Kennedy. But getting back to the day of the assassination, that night at Bethesda, per these plans that Nolan told me about and we have pieces of, John Nolan was the intermediary between Robert Kennedy, who was several floors up with Jackie Kennedy, and the autopsy doctor. So John Nolan saw and helped to direct JFK's personal physician, Admiral Berkeley, what happened at the autopsy, which is why Nolan was, as he told me, said, yes, 100% JFK was killed by a conspiracy. There was evidence of the autopsy. Hang on, Lamar. Have You're hang listening on. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. I've never endorsed a weight loss product before Ridgizone. Why Ridgizone? I've seen firsthand how well it worked for my wife. With the wedding coming up, Louise wanted to lose a little weight. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Ridgizone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule along with your metabolism 
so you stop craving the wrong foods and you burn calories faster. Once her appetite and cravings were under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off plus free shipping. Go to tryriduzone.com. That's T-R-Y, try R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Try Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off, plus free shipping. Try Riduzone.com. That's T-R-Y, try R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Try Riduzone.com. Promo code TOM. Okay. So, Lamar, you want to boil this back down again? So, bottom line is, the U.S. was about to overthrow Castro 10 days before Dallas. They had been making plans for what to do if Castro found out and retaliated. John Nolan, Robert Kennedy's closest aide, was part of that planning. So, of course, JFK's body is brought back to Bethesda Naval Hospital in Washington. And while Robert Kennedy is on, I believe it was the 5th, 6th, 7th floor, something like that, with Jackie Kennedy, he's on the phone with John Nolan. I even found exactly which phone. And then Nolan would relay Bobby's instructions about what to do and what not to do to Admiral Berkeley who was JFK, the White House personal physician, who would then basically you know, give the orders to the admirals and officers conducting the autopsy. What most people don't realize, there was what some people call a national security autopsy, a very brief one, right before the official autopsy. That's when a bullet was found by a guy who later became a rear admiral. Um, you know, he was one of incredible people here. That's when the tiny throat wound, that had been open to a very small tracheotomy opening in Dallas was hugely enlarged. So there was a very rushed, very small, very quick national security autopsy before the official autopsy began. So Nolan you know, was part of that. That left him convinced, and no doubt Robert Kennedy convinced, a conspiracy had killed JFK. Because the bullets had come from multiple directions. Right. You, know, you, can't, you can't fire bullets in two different opposite directions. And so Robert Kennedy... John Nolan was the first of several people that Robert Kennedy said, look, I want you to do your own unofficial investigation. You know, the Warren Commission's doing their thing. Hoover, I don't really trust. And, you know, we're all trying to prevent World War III, so I can't be public on this. But so Nolan actually did his own private investigation. And he also worked with Bobby on some of Bobby's other private investigations. It remained close to Bobby, literally, you know, through Bobby's final campaign. I think they saw each other, you know, within days of Robert Kennedy dying, if not that day. And so John Nolan continued to carry that torch, mm-hmm. you know, through the church committee in the 70s, through the House Select Committee in the late 70s. The, the torch being that he knew it was a conspiracy because he had been there in the room and he could see that this body had been shot from two different directions. Exactly. And also, because he had access to all the top intelligence that Robert Kennedy had, he knew eventually that Castro didn't do it. So, and he told me, yeah, Castro didn't do this. And so he knew for a long time that it was Carlos Marcello, godfather of Louisiana and much of Texas, and Santo Traficante, godfather of much of Florida, especially Tampa, had been behind it because you know, they almost killed JFK in Tampa four days before Dallas. Mm. Bobby and John F. Kennedy had to cover that up, keep it out of the press at the time. John Nolan had... Yeah, we found that story in the newspaper right. archive, in the microfilm archives in that god-awful newspaper down... Looked through thousands of pages, found yeah. the one article that came out the day after JFK died. The next day, 
when they, they, people tried to follow up reporters, it was like clammed up. Nobody talked about it. But so Nolan did get one one more piece that I guess we'll talk about. We'll wrap up after the break. We will do that. We will do that. Uh, we're talking with Lamar Waldron. His uh, latest book is The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. He's also the author of Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy and books that I played a role in. We're talking with Lamar Waldron, his most recent book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, the website, thehiddenhistoryofthejfkassassination.com. And Lamar, we were talking about John Nolan, the guy who was our informant, who was Bobby Kennedy's right-hand man, who was in the autopsy room as they were doing the autopsy with me on John in Bethesda while Bobby was up on the sixth or seventh floor with Jackie. And Bobby was continuously on the phone with Nolan. And very early on when they did the national security autopsy, a very short autopsy before the major autopsy, it was obvious to everybody at that point that John Kennedy's body had been shot by bullets coming from two different directions. Everybody in the room realized it was a conspiracy to kill John Kennedy. And John Nolan told us that. John Nolan conveyed that to Bobby Kennedy. You want to recap how that got responded to? And again, there were Nolans and several other secret investigations involved there. The piece that Nolan was always missing until the 70s was they knew where Traficante was. Marcello was in a courtroom being prosecuted by Bobby's own prosecutors. At the time so, of the assassination, yeah. Right. So somebody else had to be there, probably even a level higher than Michael Victor Mertz. And again, Nolan would have seen that Mertz memo. And so, By be there, you mean on the ground in Dallas, a supervisor right, right. participating in the assassination. Some experienced right. assassin there who could do that. So what happened in the 70s that we didn't mention, and I'll just say briefly, the Church Committee had a big problem. Like the House Select Committee, the key witnesses kept dying. Sam Giancana, Chicago mob boss, died before he could tell. Yeah, Johnny Roselli. Well, Jimmy Hoffa died next, and then Johnny Roselli, the Chicago Mafia's man in Hollywood and Vegas, who also dealt with Traficante and Marcello. And... He was brutally murdered, went up 55-gallon oil drum. So he was the missing piece that mm. Nolan needs. So when Nolan told me, when I asked him, okay, so who was behind it? He said it was Marcello, Traficanti, and Johnny Roselli. It was those three. He was as certain as, of that as if you know, the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning. Yeah. But he explained so much more, too. He said you know, why they had to keep Tampa secret. He said because of all the national security to prevent World War III, Robert Kennedy couldn't even help Abraham Bolden the framed Secret Service right. agent. Who's been who, on this show. Yeah. Right, who was arrested the day he went to Washington to tell the Warren Commission staff about the attempt to kill JFK in Tampa four days before Dallas and in Chicago three weeks before Dallas. Right. So, again, can't thank John Nolan enough. John Nolan, when I spoke to him, was a partner in the most powerful law firm in all of Washington, D.C. It may still be. Some of the time we'll talk. I mean, it was the weirdest interview I've ever had, but he... He was a stand-up guy, and he said, look, anything Harry Williams told you, you can go to the bank on. You know, he named some, uh, one of our other confidential sources who's still confidential. And so he just confirmed and gave us so much information, and, and we appreciate that, and that's why we kept his name secret. For yeah, and you can read all about it if you want to read all three of the books, actually. Ultimate Sacrifice was the first that we wrote together, Legacy of Secrecy the second, and then Lamar just came out with a new book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Lamar Waldron, W-A-L-D-R-O-N, you can check it out. Lamar, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much, Tom. Good Always talking a pleasure. Yeah, back at you. We'll be right oh. back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
Imagine the panic that swept over this dad. He was working late when he got an alert on his smartphone. His Blink motion-activated security camera picked up something. He opens the Blink app and views a video clip of a man peering through his kitchen window. He calls 911 and alerts his wife. Preventing situations like this is what Blink is all about. The point of having a home security system is to help alert you before some creep breaks into your home, not after. Blink motion-activated HD cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on batteries that last up to two years. And Blink's live feed option lets you monitor what's happening at home anytime, anywhere from your smartphone. No contracts, no subscriptions, and Blink even works with Alexa. Here's the deal. Get your Blink camera system starting at less than $100. No contracts or subscriptions. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, for details. BlinkProtect.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. BlinkProtect.com slash Tom. Blink is an Amazon company. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination by Lamar Waldron and me. This is from the introduction. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, triggered cover-ups by officials uh, that continued to negatively impact American politics, life, and foreign policy. Legacy of Secrecy details those cover-ups and hidden investigations, many for the first time, including the reasons they were carried out under such intense secrecy. Most were spawned by John and Robert Kennedy's top-secret 1963 plan to stage a coup against Fidel Castro, a plan so highly classified that it only started to be exposed in 2005 and is fully, finally, revealed in this book. Their own confessions now show the three mafia bosses, Carlos Marcello, Santo Traficante, and Johnny Roselli, were behind JFK's assassination. They used parts of the secret coup plan to kill JFK in a way that forced Attorney General Robert Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and high CIA official Richard Helms to withhold critical information not only from the public and the press, but also from each other and sometimes their own investigators. It's important to keep in mind that JFK was murdered just a year after the tense nuclear standoff during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The main goals of U.S. officials were to prevent a nuclear confrontation with the Soviets and to protect JFK's ally high up in the Cuban government. Commander Juan Almeida, head of the Cuban army in 1963, still listed as Cuba's number three official today. While U.S. leaders have managed to prevent a confrontation with Russia and preserve a critical ally in the Cuban government, this limited the investigation into JFK's murder, allowing the three mafia chiefs and their associates to remain free. As a result, the long shadow of secrecy surrounding both JFK's murder and the coup plan set the stage for the murder of Martin Luther King, ultimately driving two presidents from office and bringing about the murders of five congressional witnesses in the mid-1970s. Legacy of Secrecy breaks important new ground in key areas, detailing for the first time Louisiana Godfather Carlos Marcello's clear confession to ordering JFK's assassination. Marcello's criminal empire ranged from Dallas to Memphis, and previously secret files at the National Archives have shown that he made this confession in 1985 to an FBI informant ruled credible by a federal judge <clears throat> as part of a secret FBI undercover sting operation named Camtex. Exposed here for the first time, Camtex yielded Marcello's admission that he'd met Lee Harvey Oswald and set Jack Ruby up in business in Dallas. The operation also generated hundreds of hours of heretofore secret prison audio tapes of Marcello discussing his crimes, recorded using the FBI informant's bugged transistor radio. Yet the FBI and Justice Department withheld most of that information from the public and Congress for years 
until its revelation in this book. Carlos Marcello wasn't the only mob boss who confessed his involvement in JFK's murder to a trusted associate. Legacy also uncovers important new information about Marcello's partners in JFK's assassination, Tampa Godfather Santos Traficante and Johnny Roselli, the Chicago Mafia's man in Las Vegas and Hollywood. Shortly before their deaths, both mobsters admitted their roles in JFK's murder to their attorneys. Two of their associates with documented ties to the secret JFK Almeida coup plan likewise confessed. Using exclusive new information supported by FBI files apparently withheld from Congress, this book names two of the Georgia men who paid James Earl Ray to kill the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, white supremacist Joseph Miltier and Hugh R. Spake. Miltier, who had been involved in Marcello's murder of JFK, was part of a small clique of racists in Atlanta who used Marcello to broker the contract to murder Dr. King. We document James Earl Ray's ties to Marcello's heroin smuggling operation and long overlooked evidence in FBI files linking Ray to Marcello's associate, Johnny Roselli. Finally, this book explains why Ray, while fleeing to Canada the day after killing Dr. King in Memphis, made a 400-plus mile detour south to Atlanta, where he contacted Spake to get help from Miltier. In 1979, the last congressional committee to investigate the murders of JFK and Dr. King, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, concluded, quote, that Traficante, like Marcello, had the motive, means, and opportunity to assassinate President Kennedy, end of quote from the congressional report. The HSCA had been created in the wake of Roselli's sensational murder, but the HSCA was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. And the same was true for Traficante and Roselli, because the CIA, FBI, and other federal agencies withheld so many relevant files. The HSCA, headed by civil rights figure Louis Stokes, also concluded there was a likelihood of conspiracy in the assassination of Dr. King, and that financial gain was James Earl Ray's primary motivation. But they were unable to determine who had paid Ray or how the conspiracy had worked because the FBI and other agencies had hid critical files. With the help of more than two dozen associates of John and Robert Kennedy, backed up by thousands of recently released documents at the National Archives, many of which are quoted here for the first time, Legacy tells the full story denied to Congress and the American people, Legacy of Secrecy. Chuck Collins, who is with the Institute for Policy Studies, he said these families, he's not talking about millionaires or multimillionaires, we're not talking about the guy who lives down the street from you or on the edge of your neighborhood in a million or two million dollar house. We're talking billionaires here. We're talking people who don't fly in commercial aircraft, who don't drive their own cars, who never go shopping, who have live-in butlers and staff and everything, who live in a very different world from the rest of us even a different world from the more affluent among us. And Chuck Collins, who uh, wrote a book with Bill Gates Sr., Bill Gates' dad, about how important it is to have an inheritance tax. Frank Luntz renamed it after his efforts were well-funded by the Walton family as the so-called death tax. Chuck Collins wrote, these families have used their wealth and power to lobby and rig the rules to expand their wealth and power which is, by the way, exactly what Vice President Henry Wallace warned us about in that op-ed that he wrote for the New York Times back in 1944. He said, this is the greatest danger to America, is that they will use their money to acquire political power, and then using that political power, they will keep the average working person in eternal subjection. Uh, that was the phrase that the Vice President Henry Wallace used. 
So right now, according to the IPS, the Institute for Policy Studies, these dynastic families in the United States, that's a, a relatively small number of people. They're looking at maybe 100 families or thereabouts. These wealth dynasties, actually just three wealth dynasties, the Koch family, the Walton family, and the Mars family of the Mars Candy Empire, those three wealth dynasties own a combined $348 billion in wealth. That's four million times the median wealth of the average American family. Four million times more. I mean, it's, it, you know, it gets you back to Teddy Kennedy's quote, you know, when does the greed stop? You know, where or where does the greed stop? Collectively, if you just look at the 15 wealthiest families on the Forbes 400 list, they're worth $618 billion. But, you know, collectively in America, we're talking trillions of dollars that are owned by just a very, very small handful of families. So Robert Reich steps into this fray in an op-ed that was published, presumably at robertreich.com. The version I saw was over at commondreams.org titled, With the GOP Once More Running the Economy into the Ground, It's Time to Start Worrying About the Next Crash. Robert Reich was Bill Clinton's labor secretary. That's kind of the definition of the establishment, right? Somebody who was a cabinet member in a president's administration, and he was outspoken, but not in a way that made you think he was wrong or nuts or grandstanding or any of that kind of stuff. He just knows his stuff. He's an economist. He's a professor of economics. And he points out that there's basically one factor which drives a second factor which leads to crashes. That has to do with something called aggregate demand. Aggregate demand is the ability of working people, the, the ability of the bottom 90% to buy things. Do they have enough money to buy things? Or are they having to spend all their money on housing and healthcare and transportation and food? And if that's the situation, they've got no money left over to buy toys or books or, you know, uh, new computers or anything. And that's more than half of America right now is living paycheck to paycheck and can't deal with a thousand dollar expense. Forty percent of America can't even deal with a four hundred dollar expense. So when people get in this position, they stop buying things or their buying slows down. Uh, typically, it continues. They try to maintain their lifestyle for a while using credit, but you know, the average credit card debt in the United States now per person is, is over $20,000, per family is over $70,000, which is shocking. So anyhow, Robert Reich points out that the thing that causes this is that all that money that working people could be using to buy things, when I was a kid, my dad worked at a tool and die shop in Lansing, Michigan, and had a good union job with a pension and again, good pay and good benefits and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he would take us out to the movies and he would buy us toys at Christmas. And, you know, we, we never really wanted for clothing and things. And I mean, this was after a couple of years where he was working as a door-to-door Rexair vacuum cleaner salesman and a door-to-door -door World Book Encyclopedia salesman where we were living on surplus food from, you know, macaroni and cheese and powdered milk from the surplus store, or this, we called it, the, you know, from government handouts, basically. But once he got that good job, he could buy things. And he represented the majority of American workers at that time, well over two-thirds of American workers, because about a third of American workers are unionized, and that sets the floor for wages. 
another third of Americans had basically the same benefits. And that giant middle class spent an enormous amount of money. And that's what got the economy as strong as it was when Reagan walked in in 1981 and started taking it apart. And now here we are 40 years out, more or less, and we're seeing the fruit of Reagan's efforts. We are still living in an era of Reaganomics. The top tax rate is still below 50%. And corporate taxes, which accounted for fully a third of all government income during the Eisenhower administration, now account for 6% of government income. So the rich have gotten richer, and it actually at some level is a zero-sum game because they've gotten richer by keeping the poor poorer by keeping wages down, by being the people who own the health insurance companies and own the pharmaceutical companies and letting those prices rise. So what it comes down to is inequality, the distance between the very, very rich and all the working class people and the ability of working class people to buy things. And Robert Reich is pointing out that there's a certain kind of tipping point that happens when inequality gets so bad that working people can no longer buy things and that happened in 1929, and that happened in 2008, and he says, we're back there right now. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, literally the exact same place, and this is because we bailed out the bankers in 2008 rather than bailing out the middle class. The richest 1% of Americans now takes some 20% of total income and owns over 40% of the nation's wealth. Those are close to the peaks of 1928 and 2007. Nick Hanauer, on this program, said, Tom, I make probably 10,000 times what you make every week. He's a billionaire who makes millions of dollars, and he probably does make 10,000 times more than I do every week. He says, or every month, I forget what he said. But he said, I don't wear 10,000 more pairs of jeans than you do. I've got five or six pairs of jeans. He says, that's all I need. Even though I'm a billionaire, I mean, you know, what do I need? How, how many shoes do I need? So I'm not buying things. I'm investing my money and, you know, it'll be passed down to future generations if the Republicans have their way with these dynasties. But this is not how an economy works. An economy works from the bottom up, not the top down. Just like politics should work, by the way, and what we're learning, and this goes back to our conversation about is Beto O'Rourke really the next Bobby Kennedy, or is he just you know, a, a, a flash in the pan momentary fascination. And how will the party establishment deal with a guy who didn't, you know, kind of come up through the ranks of the establishment, who didn't, quote, pay their dues uh, to, to run for president? Because uh, we know we, there's a fairly crowded Democratic presidential field right now, although nobody has declared, everybody's doing like Marianne Williamson is doing, you know, is declaring that they've got an exploratory committee, which is the first step. I mean, if you get interest, in your exploratory committee, then, hey, you know, you go forward. And if there's not interest, you know, you back off. And so it's a, Beto O'Rourke has not even come out and said he's going to do an exploratory committee. And I think if he doesn't do it in the next month, I mean, after the first of the year, the 2020 races are rolling. I mean, they are rolling. And you've got some of the very top Democratic consultants, the people that if you're running a Democratic campaign, you want to hire these particular people, you know, the David Axelrods of the world who ran Obama's campaigns. Some of the very top Democratic consultants right now are refusing to commit to anybody, whether it's Bernie or Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren or, uh, you know, Joe Biden, uh, Al Gore. I mean, you know, I, I'd, we don't have a 
list of candidates yet. We have a list of possibilities. But they're refusing to commit to anybody because they're, they're, they're holding out. Because if Beto O'Rourke says, yes, I'm going to consider running for president, if he comes out and says that, there's actually going to be competition among the big donors and competition among the uh, big consultants you know, the, who run Democratic campaigns for Beto's business, you know, for, to, for Beto to be their guy or for them to be Beto's person. So, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. But back to the economy. And because and I say that because, you know, the economy was a big issue for Beto. And, and I also think this is true, by the way, of Sherrod Brown. I think Sherrod Brown has incredible potential. I mean, this is a guy who won Ohio by uh, seven, eight points. And the Democrat who's running for governor of Ohio lost by, I think, three points. So that's like a nine point spread, more or less. And it's because Sherrod Brown runs on economic issues. He's been on this program a number of times talking about economic issues. So what do we do with this? By, uh, by the first quarter of this year, Robert Reich says household debt was at an all-time high of $13 trillion. 80% of Americans are now living paycheck to paycheck. 80 friggin' percent. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Heather in Seattle. Hey, Heather, what's up? Hey, I want to throw out Al Gore into the pot. I don't, I think, think, he, Al- I don't think he has any interest in running. Well, I'm not so sure, only because this next election is really going to be about climate as well. Right. And I don't think that we have the time to have someone in there who doesn't understand immediately what has to happen and has the corporate relationships to get the corporations on our side. Yeah. Well, so, uh, Al Gore Beto, I don't know, but yeah, we maybe. do need somebody who puts the climate as either the first item that they're going to run on or the second. Yeah. And Beto was very strong on climate change, actually, in the Texas campaign. He talked about it a lot. And I think, again, that's one of the things that millennials and Gen Xers are in their lifetime. I mean, all of us right now in our lifetimes are seeing climate change that's pretty dramatic and pretty dangerous, but it's going to get far more extreme over the next 20, 30 years. And young people are well aware of this. And that's the point that Beto kept making. And I, I realize I'm sounding like a Beto booster here. I've never met the guy. I've never talked to the guy. I've just seen him on TV. I am not offering an opinion other than my opinion that uh, his policies seem right. And he's one of those rare uh, gifted individuals who can, who can just basically control a crowd, you know, who get a crowd going. And, and we'll see. Or Al Gore as head of the Interior Department, you know, yeah. something like that. Put him in the cabinet. And, you know, which is something that uh, President Obama probably should have done or could have done. Although, again, I don't know. You know, Al had that divorce. He did a pretty messy divorce with Tipper. And, you know, yet we have a president who has been married how many times? Three. You know. Yeah. So that argument I'm not buying anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I think you can get past that, you know, and and Al had that massage therapy here in Portland uh, saying bad things about him. I'll just leave it at that. But my reasoning is specifically for the climate. Yeah, yeah. So interior position or climate czar, as they now like to call things, is good. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Excellent. Uh, Heather, thank you for the call. Uh, There's, yeah, there's a lot there. So 
Nancy, we have 30 seconds. Do you have something quick you want to say? Oh, yes, Tom. I was thinking about messaging. And when my hero, Bernie Sanders, gets attacked as being too extremist, why don't they simply turn it around and say, what's not extreme about a billionaire class? Yep, I I completely agree. And what's not extreme about wanting to destroy Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, public schools, roads? I mean, this is the Republican agenda to destroy all this stuff. It is extreme. And no, Bernie is right in the middle of the FDR agenda. He's totally mainstream, as is much of the Democratic Party. And a fine thing it is, by the way. So on that note, we will be back. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.